All right, we're back. In regards to, to Lewis Scooter Libby, we forgot to do a quote from The Onion uh, sometime last year. We, we love the headline, Scooter Libby regrets not changing nickname before start of trial. And I'm sorry, report, we couldn't find that actual, uh, actual headline, that actual article from, from The Onion. But uh, I do have this one I want to quote from. According to The Onion, Bush vows to put man on moon before it disappears at end of the month. Said the article, The moon has already shrunk to nearly a quarter of its size, Bush said in a speech at NASA headquarters. That means we have less than a week to move. Noted the article, The president went on to propose the construction of a lunar capsule that could land on a concave surface. And here's one we missed from last year. Halliburton gets contract to pry gold fillings from New Orleans corpses' teeth. Anyway, we've been meaning to talk about some local political issues, uh, specifically an interesting land deal out in Natomas that's been raising some eyebrows. I only want to talk a little bit about uh, this story today, but according to Terry Hardy, writing in The Bee on an article that was uh, published on May 19th, when the Natomas Unified School District bought 41 acres of farmland at $325,000 an acre, it was a record price for the unincorporated area, but officials dubbed the sale a bargain nonetheless, given that they were getting the land at half the appraised value. But apparently between December and, and last month, there were some interesting revelations about this sale. For example... A district employee apparently failed to tell school board members that the law firm they hired to advise them on the deal had disclosed a potential conflict of interest in that it also does work for the developer who sold them the land. But apparently after months of questions from the Sacramento Bee, Superintendent Steve Farrar said he's launching an internal investigation into the purchase to see whether, quote, appropriate direction was given, unquote. Now, apparently, uh, real estate brokers familiar with this area in Natomas said other farmland in the area has been selling for fifty to $100,000 an acre. By comparison, the appraisal commissioned by the district valued the 41 acres at $602,000 an acre. And apparently, seeing what a bargain it was, the Natomas School Board voted unanimously to pay $325,000 an acre for the property. And yes, by way of review, that's three to six times the price of other farmland in the area. But I, I love this quote from the article. I have to just quote this directly. Under the deal, the district agreed that it was getting the land at a bargain price and that the seller, a partnership of developer Angelo Sacopoulos and Woodside Homes, would be allowed to claim a tax write-off for the difference between the purchase price and fair market value. Now, if I'm reading this correctly, and I may not be, uh, I interpret this to mean that Angelo Sakopoulos got a tax write-off of $277,000 per acre times 41 acres. Now, Frank Harding, described as, at the time, assistant superintendent in charge of facilities for Natomas Unified, was quoted as saying, the decision was made to go with the assumptions because, quote, that's the way the developer viewed the property, unquote reported the beat, the developer, Sakopoulos, failed to return two phone calls last week asking for comment. I also like the quote from a subsequent article by Terry Hardy that noted that Sacramento leaders 
say they were surprised the district approved the $13.4 million deal in December without discussing with city officials what it would take to build on the site, which has no sewers, no water service, and no roads. But some explanation for how this deal uh, went down might come from last Sunday's San Francisco Chronicle magazine, in which the cover story is titled San Francisco's Tower of Power, describing 2500 Steiner Street as ground zero for Susie Tompkin Buell's Democratic Fundraising Machine. This article by Sam Whiting deserves a quote or two. Start of the article. Of all the opening lines in apartment elevators, one of the best had to have been delivered by Marcos Kunalakis upon moving into 2500 Steiner Street in Pacific Heights. A neighbor stepped into the elevator, introduced herself as Sally Hambrecht, to which Kolonakis graciously replied, We've met. We met at the White House at a state dinner. Right. How clumsy of her. Who's Marcos Kunalakis? Well, he's Angelo Sokopoulos' son-in-law. And featured in the magazine is a picture of the stunning couple with a stunning view behind them of San Francisco Bay. His wife is Eleni Sakopoulos Kolonakis. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, they often host fundraising cocktail receptions at their home, after which selected guests then go upstairs for dinner at the Buells. Does having big-time political clout influence the kind of deals you get on your land transactions? Well, we can't say that there's any proof of that. But we will, of course, continue to look into the matter. We do think that our listeners in places such as Serbia will find this sort of thing rather familiar. And speaking of dubious behavior by prominent Democrats, it is sort of depressing uh, to this correspondent that uh, the three frontrunners on the, on the Dem side of the, the ledger, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards, are all dithering about Healthcare, the same way they seem to be dithering about Iraq. We'll give a Barack Obama credit for his stand on Iraq, but when it comes to healthcare, he's apparently saying things like, We need better cost control. Uh, we need better disease management. We need to have electronic record keeping. My goodness, that's going to fix things. And whether other choices being John Edwards, a notable personal injury attorney, who evidently never saw a uh, malpractice lawsuit he didn't like, uh, vying with Hillary Clinton, the mastermind of the Clinton administration's health care reform. I tell you, it may be time for this correspondent to consider practicing medicine in Costa Rica. But all that looks positively sunny next to this uh, item about the Democrats, under the headline of Democrats Back Down on Iraq. Yeah, it's sad, believe me, missy, when you're born to be a sissy without the feminine five. But I could show my prowess, be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. I think I'll quote from The Week magazine on this. This is from last week's issue. Congressional Democrats this week blinked in their showdown with President Bush, agreeing to a $120 billion war funding bill that does not include a timetable for bringing troops home from Iraq. Instead, the bill makes reconstruction aid to Iraq loosely contingent on the Iraqi government's meeting a series of, quote, benchmarks, unquote, including progress in disarming militias and legislation to equitably share oil revenues among Shiites, Sunnis, and Kurds. The magazine didn't mention, that, uh, didn't mention the other partner in all of that, Western oil companies. 
Bush must report to Congress on whether Iraq is meeting those goals, but he's not bound to do anything if Iraq doesn't. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid admitted that the benchmark requirements are extremely weak, but said they represented progress. Said Reid, look where we've come. It's a lot more than the president ever expected he'd have to agree to, unquote. I'm afraid there's no denying I'm just a dandelion A fate I don't deserve But I could show my prowess Be a lion, not a mouse If I only had the nerve Now in the wake of uh, last month Being the most deadly month in Iraq Since November of 2004 The Bush administration, you know Still insists it's got a plan Fred Kaplan writing in Slate.com said, The post-surge strategy the White House floated this week sounds a lot like the pre-surge strategy. An editorial in the Palm Beach, Florida Post asked, Let's see if we have this straight. The United States has to be in Iraq to fight the terrorists who are in Iraq because the United States is in Iraq. Doesn't this sound a bit like Catch-22? Andrew Sullivan, writing in TheAtlantic.com, said, It's true that an American defeat in Iraq would be a triumph for al-Qaeda, but what's infuriating is that this debacle was entirely foreseeable. In fact, documents released last week show that the intelligence analysts warned the White House that invading Iraq would be an al-Qaeda recruiter's dream, documents Bush ignored in his march to war. What's really disturbing, though, was uh, when I got my copy of the Week magazine this week looked at the cover and it shows Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and George Bush looking at each other over their shoulders with the headline, Should We Talk or Fight? And you can trust us on this one. The answer is talk. And we find it curious that the Sacramento Bee reported that the American Conservative magazine is second only to Seymour Hersh at the New Yorker in being at the forefront in reporting on much-corroborated Bush administration contingency plans to attack Iran. Now, ex-CIA officer Philip Giraldi weighs in with a warning that the recent drumbeat of official leaks and disinformation designed to sell such a war to the public indicates that we may be on the brink of one. Noted the magazine, Two new Pentagon messages have been widely reported that Iran is involved in killing Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that Iran is working with al-Qaeda. Giraldi sniffs at these claims, saying that the Iranian weapons reportedly captured can easily be found, along with arms made by the U.S., Russia, and China, in the region's bazaars. Anyway, we're going to hope to bring you a James Banford on this program in the future to talk about the drumbeat for war in Iran and why this isn't such a good idea. I mean, that one really doesn't have to be explained, does it? I think we need to get out of politics and into some other topics like science. Well, let's, let's segue from uh, politics into science with this item. A very important story we've been sitting on for a while, to quote from the May 12th issue of New Scientist magazine. Governments deny it, but many people have long suspected that depleted uranium weapons may cause cancer. It looks as if the suspicions were right. Depleted uranium is a dense, weakly radioactive metal used in armor-piercing shells. Hundreds of tons of them were fired by U.S. and U.K. forces in Iraq in 2003. Previous research at the U.S. government's Sandia National Laboratories in New Mexico found that people exposed to depleted uranium dust were at little extra risk of developing cancers. 
New Scientist reported that in July of 2005. Said the magazine, now the first study of DU's effects on human lung cells suggest otherwise. Toxicologist John Wise and colleagues at the University of Southern Maine in Portland exposed cultures of human bronchial fibroblasts, that's a, a type of cell taken from the lung, They were exposed to particles of uranium oxide, which is typically found in depleted uranium dust. The chromosomes in the cells mutated and the cells died. These are toxic effects that increased with the particle concentration. In essence, this means that this may increase a person's risk of lung cancer. We talked about this in previous programs in regards to uh, the war in the Balkans. European Union troops are extremely concerned about uh, this DU material that's been, um, you know, that was all over uh, the battlefield areas. And yes, there have been previously reported cancer clusters among the soldiers. And we can't vouch for some of the calculations we reported on in previous shows, but estimates are that uh, this sort of nuclear contamination is comparable to that of nuclear test sites or more. We will continue to follow this. And speaking of politics, science, and nuclear contamination, regarding the murder by polonium of Alexander Lintvenenko by former KGB agent Andrei Lugovoy, we reported last week that the evidence against Lugovoy is strong, being that he left a trail of radiation all the way back to Moscow. There's a rather nasty cloud of suspicion over the head of a... Vladimir Putin, the uh, increasingly dictatorial president of Russia. And preliminary indications are it's not likely Andrei Lugovoy is going to have to face charges. Writing in the Russian press, alleged journalist Vladimir Smirnov said, Why should we extradite him? Trumping up charges against a Russian citizen and demanding his extradition are nothing more than attempts to embarrass Russia. Besides, the British have been harboring actual Russian criminals for years. They refuse to hand over exiled Russian tycoon Boris Berezovsky, for example, even though he stands accused of everything from embezzlement to funding the violent overthrow of the state. Perhaps not coincidentally, Boris Berezovsky was also funding political opposition to Vladimir Putin. All right, let's move further away from politics and more towards science, although this following story, I'm not sure where we are in the middle of that mix. Let me quote from some of the excellent reporting you always get from The Economist magazine. If they're not always right, at least they always write well. And this is a... (laughs) Well, let me just quote. Dinosaurs are monstrously exciting. Alas, museums with dinosaur exhibits tend to indoctrinate visitors with godless evolutionary theory. So parents who believe that every word in the Bible is literally true have nowhere to take their tots for an uncorrupting fix of Tyrannosaurus rex. Until this week. The Creation Museum opened in Petersburg, Kentucky on May 28th. Here, impressionable youngsters can watch awesome animatronic dinosaurs interacting with primitive humans, just as Genesis implies they did. That was shortly before the beginning of time, one Monday morning in 4004 B.C. You know, I tell you what, Jack Parr was right. The British know how to use the language. We're just borrowing it. The Economist goes on. The museum's aim is to teach visitors how to answer attacks on the Bible's authority in geology, biology, and so on, while providing a family-friendly experience. The founder, Ken Ham, raised $27 million from thousands of pious donors to build it. The museum says that if Noah took two of every animal on his ark, he must have had dinosaurs. 
Could dinosaurs have fit into a boat only 300 cubits, about 135 meters long? Quote, it is likely that God brought young adults. Being smaller, they would be easier to care for, unquote. Note of the magazine, the attention to detail is superb. In one exhibit, tiny human figures about to be engulfed by the rising floodwaters are shown throttling each other to remind visitors why they deserved to drown. The flood killed off most dinosaurs, of course, but the descendants of those Noah saved survived until quite recently, which is why legends of dragons pop up in so many cultures. They were probably hunted to extinction by chaps like St. George, says another exhibit. Keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, The Economist is read all over the world, and we're talking about the good folks here in the good old U.S. of A., Lawrence Krauss, writing in New Scientist magazine, said, American students are already lagging in the sciences. The last thing they need is a museum that uses 21st century animatronics to give fairy tales an air of authority. Well, let's go back to real evolutionary biology, courtesy of The Economist. I think the current issue. Interesting little blurb in there about um, some new theories on how life emerged. I mean, like, really at least in the case of life that left uh, recognizable fossils. We've talked about the Cambrian explosion in the past, and it's, it's kind of a curious uh, topic worth mentioning again, that uh, if you look back on the fossil record, all of a sudden, about 540 million years ago, bang, fossils everywhere. There's fossils older than that, of course, but at this point in time, life suddenly got bigger, more abundant, and more diverse. Wrote the economist, the latest explanation of the Cambrian explosion has returned to the idea that the crucial change was the evolution of hard bits. And this is an interesting theory. Uh, fossils before that appear to be of gooey, soft animals, and all of a sudden we've got uh, things that are recognizable as animals because they had, in a lot of cases, uh, shells of one sort or another. Anyway, scientists working in Germany studying sponges have discovered that there's several different enzymes that sponges have that allow them to convert carbon dioxide and water into bicarbonate ions, which are the precursors of hard stuff, like calcium carbonate, better known to you as seashells. Or if you grind them up and add a little sugar, also known as Tums and acids. Anyway, we are not going to delve into the biochemistry of this, but uh, it's an interesting theory. And you wouldn't think that to you and me, being human beings, would, would share some of these enzymes with sponges, but in fact, we apparently do. And so does all animal life, according to this theory, which does make you think that maybe we all go back to this common ancestor about 540 million years ago. You know, it occurs to me we have a lot of topics where politics meets science. I think we're going to delve into those in segment three. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with colitis go
fountain, a rocking horse, people eat mushrooms.